I'm Rick Dalton. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Ha! It's official, old buddy. Who well, has been? Burst yourself like that in front of all those damn people. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I play Miss Carlson. The Klutz. In this town, I can all change like that. Once upon a time in Hollywood, in theaters July 26th. Hello, and welcome to the very first edition of the Camera Roll Podcast. My name is Ho Lin, and I'm your host. I'm also the writer for the Camera Roll movie blog, which you can find on the internet at camera-roll.com. This podcast covers movies and TV shows, and today I think it's only fitting for our very first film podcast to review a film that's about film. I'm talking, of course, about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And today, as I look at the film, I'm very pleased to have as my guest and sparring partner, James Barber. James has been obsessed with the intersection of movies and music since he got the Banana Splits LP for his sixth birthday. Uh, he's been a manager, music publisher, radio DJ, A&R executive, and record producer, working with artists as diverse as Ryan Adams, Lisa Loeb, Guns N' Roses, Girls Against Boys, Amy Mann, Driving and Crying, and underground pop legend Adam Schmidt. In terms of film, he loves the work of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, but he also has a special affection for action directors like Don Siegel, John Flynn, Walter Hill, Phil Carlson, and John Woo. In terms of recent movies, he strongly recommends Cinemax's Quarry series, starring Logan Marshall Green and based on the Max Allen Collins novels, Leigh Winnell's Upgrade, also starring Logan, and Jesse V. Johnson's Accident Man, starring Scott Atkins, as recent A-plus entertainments that you've probably missed. Uh, James is currently the entertainment editor for Military.com. Let's get right to it and connect with Jim. Thanks for joining us, Jim. How's everything going down there? LA's beautiful. It's once upon a time in Hollywood weekend down here, and everybody's excited. So, Jim, I know you've had a, a slight connection to Tarantino through your line of work. Uh, speaking for myself, I remember first encountering his movies uh, when I saw Reservoir Dogs in the cinemas in 93, uh, which was a pretty overwhelming experience at the time. But I think uh, Tarantino as a phenomenon really struck home for me a few years later. I was actually working as an English teacher at a university in China at the time. And this was a period in which it would be very difficult to get your hands on any sort of Western media. But about halfway through the year, beginning of 1995, a new foreign teacher came on campus, and he brought with him a bootleg copy of Pulp Fiction on VHS tape. And we basically watched that sucker inside out for the next four months, and it got to the point where we would be walking around campus, repeating conversations from the movie, talking like the characters from the movie, and, of course, the Chinese students didn't really understand English, so they had no idea what we were talking about. So it was like we were in our own Tarantino-created bubble. And I think that's the effect that a lot of his best films have. I think it, it gets you high on the on sort of the, the, the joys of cinema, but it also makes you feel hip and that you're sort of in on something that maybe not everybody is in on. So, Jim, what are your recollections of uh, encountering Tarantino's work back in the day? Well, I'm actually remembering, you know, I didn't maybe see Reservoir Dogs quite as 
immediately when it came out as I would have liked to have. But when I was touring around with rock bands in my youth, um, we used to trade cassettes of weird stuff that people listen to. And one of the favorite things that every, every band had on the road was something called a red tape. It's a series of prank phone calls to a bar in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> They're filthy. Um, the guy, Red, the bartender, when he answers the phone and he realizes he's being pranked, could curse on a level that no one could imagine. <laughs> and at some point, right around the time that Lawrence Tierney was in Reservoir Dogs, he also got hired to sort of act out the red tape for a short film. He just made faces and it was little bits of film and photos of Lawrence Tierney while the, the tape played in the background. And that reminded a lot of us younger people who Lawrence Tierney was. And we went back and saw Reservoir Dogs and fell in love with that movie. And again, like you with Pulp Fiction, everybody went around and pretended to have um, Reservoir Dogs conversations, especially in restaurants. <laughs> Um, but in 94, I would started working for Geffen Records. And even though they let me have an office in Atlanta, Georgia, I would spend at least a week a month here in L.A. And one of the artists on Geffen, Urge Overkill, had been asked to cut Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. That's actually not true. Let's be straight. They had covered it on one of their indie records before they signed to Geffen. And Quentin licensed it. And we all knew that the guy from Reservoir Dogs had Urge Overkill on his new movie and we had no idea how amazing that music cue was going to be. That almost made Urge Overkill have a huge career. Band probably didn't help themselves, but, you know, it was the most... It was, it was probably the only time he's launched a band from one of his movies. So we all knew the movie was coming. And I think everybody saw it the week it came out. And I don't think anybody was prepared for it. Hmm. It's hard to imagine now, 25 years later, is it 25 years later? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, 25. Yeah, People weren't ready. You know, Quentin's part of the culture now, but people really weren't expecting something as multi-layered and ambitious and complicated as Pulp Fiction in 1994. So heading into this movie, what would you say was your top three to five list of uh, personal favorite Tarantino movies? Um, for me, my one through five Quentin Tarantino movies are all Jackie Brown. <laughs> Big Elmore Leonard fan? I'm an Elmore Leonard fan, but I think it's mostly the romance or the implied romance between Robert Forster and Pam Greer in that movie. It's the most human thing he had ever done in a movie until this new one. Um, and it's those performances and the way they connect with each other that makes that movie sort of rise above everything else. They're not into being clever. They don't, they don't, they're not, they're not playing the game that a lot of the other younger hipper actors are playing when they're in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, I have to agree. I think in a lot of ways, it's the best thing he's done. Um, unfortunately, I think it probably came out at the worst time because everybody at the time was probably expecting Pulp Fiction Part 2. And I kind of think that the uh, relatively muted response to that movie probably led Tarantino some of the paths that he's taken up to now, where you could argue that he's sort of more having more fun with genre and being gimmicky and just playing around in his sandbox rather than focusing on the content of the movie. 
Personally, I have a have a great sentimental attachment to Pulp Fiction, so that's probably still number one on my list. Although Jackie Brown is right there. Well, one more thing about Jackie Brown before we get off it, and, and this will tie into later. My favorite LA filming location is the tunnel from Terminal Three at LAX, and that mosaic on the wall, which is what opens Jackie Brown, and it's what Polanski and Sharon Tate walk down at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and of course. There are literally a couple of thousand other choices for what might be your favorite scene that was filmed in that location. It's been used over and over and over again. But anytime I ever see that in a movie, it just makes my heart leap a little bit because that's just the greatest place to me. So um, I have a another weird favorite choice, which is um, the end of season five of CSI. The original Vegas flavor. The last two episodes were Quentin came, came up with a story and directed the two episodes. And it has my very favorite Tarantino music cue of all time in episode one of those two episodes, which the CSI Nick Stokes has been um, kidnapped by a villain played by John Saxon because Quentin got some of his old actors cast in this as well. And he's been buried alive in a casket with a camera in it that has a feed to the CSI labs. The villain delivers a cassette tape with his message of how to get to watch Nick while he suffocates to death. And they stick in the tape and out blares outside chance by the turtles, which is also the very best fake Rolling Stones song anybody ever recorded. And he does a pant he, he, he does a close-up on every other member of the team's face as they're horrified by nick's suffocation in the box and it's incredibly mannered it really does break out of the style of how every other episode of the show has ever been done and this song is playing louder than you'll ever hear a music cue on a network tv show and it's awesome let's see i'm, I'm a big fan of inglorious bastards for all of its static staginess i am probably one of the bigger fans of hateful eight that you'll find i know no one else likes it that much it's held up for me um, every time i've seen it so having laid the groundwork on our tarantino history let's get right into it let's talk about once upon a time dot 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 in hollywood so I'll just lead off by saying straight out, I, I really enjoyed the film. I think it's probably his best since Jackie Brown. I think it's interesting in that it's both a summation of his career, but it also goes in new directions that I haven't really seen him go as a writer or director before. Uh, just to give a brief synopsis, the movie takes place in 1969 in Hollywood, and it focuses mainly on two characters, Rick Dalton a famous movie star played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's seen better days and is on the verge of going out of fashion. And his best buddy, who also happens to be his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. And for most of its running time, the movie's pretty much a hangout story. So we get to follow these two characters as they make their rounds around Hollywood. Uh, Rick is trying as best he can to stave off irrelevancy by starring in any role he could find, including playing a bad guy opposite an up-and-coming movie star who is played by Timothy Oliphant. 
And meanwhile, Cliff uh, basically is just trying to make ends meet, cruising the streets of Hollywood and trying to find work as a stuntman. In his case, work is dried up because of a rumor, which is possibly true, that he killed his wife. And in a parallel story, we have our third main character, who's played by Margot Robbie, uh, Sharon Tate, the actress, who was married to director Roman Polanski at the time and was starting to make her mark in movies. She sort of symbolizes the new free-spirited Hollywood that's threatening to take over from old guys like Rick Dalton. And lurking at the edges of the story is the Manson family, led by Charlie Manson. And anybody who knows their history of this period knows that all might not end well. So James, uh, looking over the movie, what was your major impressions coming out of it? When I mentioned episodic television before, one thing that really um, comes through in this movie is Quentin's love of television. And, you know, there's a real sense that in 1969, people made time to watch their shows and you had to watch your show at the time that it aired. So on Sunday nights, everybody got around the TV and watched the FBI, which is a running thing in the movie. Um, There's a great scene where Brad Pitt um, feeds his dog um, after he gets off from work with Rick and Cliff um, sits down and watches Mannix. Um, turns it on before he starts making dinner, but his the point of his evening is a great episode of Mannix. And then there's the the old episodes of Bounty Law, which is Rick Dalton's TV show, which I guess is from the 50s. Um, and he left the show to be a movie star and his career has never recovered. But the way he shoots those, and then the amazing bits about the show Lancer, which I don't know if you've ever seen Lancer. Um, I went and looked it up on YouTube, and there's a bunch of episodes, and man, it's like a worst version of the Big Valley. It is like watching paint dry. <laughs> but you know, maybe when he was five or six years old, and the TV was babysitting him, he got obsessed with the show, and he does amazing things with Rick Dalton's guest spot on an episode of Lancer. For me, it was a kick to see Leonardo DiCaprio uh, substituted for Steve McQueen in the supposed outtakes of the John Sturges movie, The Great Escape. That's so great. Yeah, the running the running theme throughout the movie really is that Rick sees his days as a leading man rapidly coming to an end, so he's trying to glom onto any job he can find. But in the process, we, we sort of get, a, we get to see a lot of clips from previous productions uh, from films such as... Uh, the 14 Fists of McCluskey, which is basically another take on Inglorious Bastards, except uh, in this one, Leonardo DiCaprio gets to bow down a, a bunch of Nazis using a flamethrower. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Fried, you Nazi bastards! <laughs> but one of the things I really love about the film is Rick keeps running into people who love that movie. It's a low-budget um trashy action picture yet rick still manages to connect with all these people 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 saw the movie even though there's no prestige whatsoever in starring in a flamethrower nazi movie i think for for trying to be accurate though the, you know the type of grindhouse film that 14 fists of mccluskey is probably didn't come into the vogue until the, the 70s really though right I, i'm going to raise my hand here for you though ho sure one of the greatest things available right now is Amazon Prime has bought access to some unbelievably trashy film catalogs. Believe it or not, there are war movies and spy movies and action pictures from the 60s that actually equal anything 
from the early 70s. It's just the way the story's been framed. You don't hear about those as much. There's a complete education to be had in war movies, spy movies, and spaghetti westerns hiding on Amazon Prime right now. So anybody who sees this movie, there is a, a giant banquet of trash available to you right now. All right, there you have it. Amazon's not even a sponsor, and you gave them a good plug. Get your salespeople on that right away, sir. You know, one thing that did strike me about the movie is is that both Rick and Cliff are not your typical motor-mouthed Tarantino characters. You know, they both have some mileage on them. They're a little bit older, a little bit more self-reflective. Certainly there are some moments where the typical Tarantino gift for Gab comes out, and of course there are a few moments that are very explosive and violent. But overall, I really felt like it was a very, it had a very elegiac tone to it. But I also think it's sort of... Tarantino wants you to imagine an alternate history of the last 50 years after this movie. And, you know, part of it made me feel really hopeful to think about that. And part of it come crashing down and you feel incredibly sad. But he does imagine a very different ending to the 60s than the one that we actually got. And um, I think for that reason, it's a lot deeper and more emotional than other films he's made. It's much less about him being clever and entertaining himself, much more about something he felt when he was a kid. And I really think that comes out in the, in the production design of the film. You, you really can tell they took pains to to recreate that particular era and that particular milieu. Um, one of my favorite films is Jacques Demy's Model Shop, and which I've probably watched 25 times in my life. And I would say that Quentin did a very great job of evoking the Los Angeles that Jacques Demy actually filmed in Model Shop. Um, Marlowe with James Garner, another 1969 movie, is a, is a, seems to also be a visual um, touchstone for him in making this. And both featuring Bruce Lee in uh, cameo parts as well. Indeed, that's right. Yeah, Bruce Lee makes a pretty funny appearance in this movie. Uh, speaking as an Asian American, um, I'm not quite sure how I feel. About his confrontation with Brad Pitt, but it's definitely a hilarious scene. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. Um, are we going to agree that, that um, Cliff, Brad Pitt's character, makes a, a sort of nasty comment about Chuck Norris in the middle of that fight? Sort of an allusion to him without actually mentioning his name. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of uh, pre-dating that goes on in the movie or uh, allusions to things that will happen later in history. There's another thing about Cliff and Rick that I really like is the sense that I think Cliff may be smarter than Rick. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that one. Right. Um, but Cliff knows his place in the firmament of Hollywood. And... It's happy to be there. And so I've known so many people who below the line talent working in Hollywood who sort of have this, I can't believe I'm here. This is an amazing ride. I don't know how long it's going to last sort of approach to life. And I don't know if I've ever really seen that personality on a, as well portrayed in a film before. You could make a good case that Brad Pitt is the main character in the movie. And, um, I think it's a terrific performance. I think it's probably his best in a long time. And in a strange way, I think 
Cliff, the character, is is sort of a, a fantasy figure for Tarantino. You know, he likes to have stand-ins in his movies. I think the most obvious example is uh, Christian Slater's character in True Romance, sort of these idealized versions of who Tarantino daydreams himself being. And I think Cliff is the latest iteration of that where, you know, he's not a roaring success, but he's very comfortable in his own skin He's, he's part of the magic of movies. He's the guy behind the scenes that you might not hear about, and I think Tarantino has an awful lot of affection for him and for sort of the ordinary Joes in the business, and I think that really comes through in the movie. Okay, moving on to um, favorite scenes. I certainly have a few scenes that uh, I particularly liked. Um, did you have any that really struck you? One thing that I really love in the movie is um, the flood of music cues from Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> yep. And how it's acknowledged that it's not cool to like Paul Revere and the Raiders, but um, Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate love the records, and it's just it's just great how that keeps coming back around. And um, again, as someone who sort of identifies with um, Tarantino, is too young to understand what was cool about the '60s. He just responded to things when he was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, on his own without being filtered through an older brother or sister and he likes what he likes and I love how he takes stuff that wasn't the hip stuff from the moment and elevates it and says you know Paul Revere and the Raiders they're great so the scene where Sharon Tate's dancing to a record in her bedroom is one of my favorites mm-hmm. the scene where she goes to see the Wrecking Crew at the movie theater in Westwood she actually watches Sharon Tate on the screen. And so it's Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate, watching Sharon Tate playing a character in the movie. And the excitement and possibility and joy that she portrays all the way through the movie is just really affecting. So I don't know how many lines she has in the movie. Character doesn't speak much, but the performance doesn't need the lines. She's just really to me, the best thing in the movie. Uh, if I were to pick out favorite scenes, I think uh, the passage where Leonardo's acting on the on the set of that chintzy Western series, and he's basically acting alongside a child actor who's clearly supposed to be Jodie Foster. <laughs> so good. And I, I think it's, it's some of the most grown-up stuff Tarantino has written in quite a while, where you have DiCaprio's character basically coming face-to-face with his own artistic work and trying to find a way to just keep soldiering on. And thanks to DiCaprio, it, it's a really intensely uncomfortable and funny and touching scene. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you. The scene where the character of Rick Dalton is playing the part of a villain on an episode of Lancer to me is the best acting he's done in I don't know how long. The, the acting he does in character is just remarkable. You know, it's funny, uh, Tarantino has sort of dissed David Lynch in the past. You know, he says that his works are inexplicable. But uh, the scenes where DiCaprio is struggling to learn his lines and then he finally nails them in practice, uh, to me, are, are a tip of the hat to um, similar scenes in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive where Naomi Watts comes across a similar situation where she has to recite this cheesy dialogue, but just through the power of performance, it turns it into something really interesting. 
Another passage that really stood out for me is when uh, Brad Pitt's character um, basically picks up one of the Manson clan as a hitchhiker and brings her back to the ranch where the Manson family is hanging out, which also happens to be a former movie studio where Brad Pitt's character used to work. And it's a very eerie, quiet scene because uh, he's trying to find the man who owns the ranch and who used to work with him on these movies. And he's basically surrounded by the Manson family as he's, he's trying to find this person. And there's, def, there's a definite ratcheting up of tension, but uh, it's very subtle. It's very underplayed. It's not like as showy as it typically is in Tarantino movies, and I found it quite effective. And even though the end of the scene isn't quite what you expect, it's still a uh, a wallop. Do you feel the same way? Oh, definitely. And, and, and you know, it's obviously... A, a, an old style Western showdown between the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood on a movie set. It, it, it's um, the scene in the, in the cabin where he goes in um, looking for Bruce Dern is um, all of it top to bottom with Dakota Fanning. is just incredible. Uh, well, you know, one other thing that sort of fascinated me about this movie is that um, even though Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are the protagonists of this movie, they, they don't necessarily come from, the same sort of cultural background that Tarantino himself comes from. There's this sort of this running joke through the movie where this agent played by Al Pacino wants to get Leonardo DiCaprio to accept more roles in spaghetti westerns, Clint Eastwood style. Well, everybody knows that uh, Tarantino loves, loves, loves spaghetti westerns, and yet Leonardo DiCaprio's character is just dismissive of them and doesn't understand what they are. So you, real, you really do get the sense that Tarantino is a little bit more detached from his characters in a good way. He's, he sort of is able to look at them a little bit more objectively. But I also think it's a sense that the stuff that he took for granted as being forever when he was a kid and first encountered it is almost all gone. And did you have a chance to see Once Upon a Time on 35mm up there? Because for me, it was a shock to see a pristine print of something in 35mm with the idea that it was going to be screened that way and presented that way to see a 35 millimeter film after almost a decade of only seeing things digitally projected was a shock. And it made me sad while I watched the movie because I was thinking maybe this is the last time I see a movie, a new movie conceived of as a 35 millimeter film. The, 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 the universe that he grew up in that he's made of, his career obsessing about has almost completely disappeared. That feeling definitely comes across in the movie. And, um, you know, on a more general note, I think it's pretty amazing that uh, a filmmaker with his very specific, distinctive preoccupations, you know, still has the clout and the ability to make movies in this day and age that are very idiosyncratic and very much has his personality stamped over it, and yet he can still release them as mainstream entertainments. And Tarantino is a film maven, so I, th I think this film was always going to be a valentine to Hollywood, but uh, you know, coming out as it does at this particular juncture of his career, you know, he's been in the business for three decades now, and he's seen a lot of changes, and a lot of the old Hollywood that he, he loves is going away. That definitely adds a little touch of nostalgia and a little extra poignancy to this movie. Yeah, there should probably be a, a, a warning for people who have issues with Quentin's foot fetish. Um, <laughs> he really lets his freak flag fly here in this movie. Yes, but at least this time there's a thematic connection to it all because the Manson family basically tromps around the whole movie in barefoot. So at least there's that connection.
well, does does a certain character need to take her shoes off in a movie theater? I don't know. Not just shoes off, but smudgy feet as well. So I think we got to talk about the ending. Um, so if you want to remain spoiler free, I suggest you skip ahead about five minutes in this podcast because we're going to be revealing a few whopping spoilers here. Okay, we've given fair warning, so here we go. So given that Sharon Tate, a real-life person, is in this movie, and Charles Manson and his family, who are real-life characters, are also in this movie, and given what we know about the tragedy that went down in August 1969 at Sharon Tate's home, you might expect the movie to go in a particular direction for the climax, but that's not really what happens at all. Um, so Jim, what, what did you make of the climax and, and how well did you think it, f- it fit together with the rest of the movie? The first thing that really sort of set me back and really shocked me is the scene when the Manson family are coming up, um, Cielo drive and he basically has made it, he's turned it into a slasher movie. The way he's framed it, the way they're moving, it's like zombies are coming to eat your brains. For some people, I think that's going to be really difficult interpretation but based on what comes next i think it works shall we say that the manson family were big fans of bounty law (laughs) well we might as well dive right in and spoil it so as befitting a fairy tale story uh, tarantino basically presents us with a alternate universe ending to the story where instead of encountering sharon tate the manson family encounters rick and cliff and the usual Tarantino bloody hijinks ensue, but at the end of it all, our three main principles emerge uh, safe and sound. Uh, evil gets its just desserts, and sort of this happy alternate universe, uh, we get to walk off into the sunset with our heroes. Quinn's a guy who's made a career out of violence. He's been excessively violent in a lot of different moments and in his films. But I think this is the most violent sequence he's ever put in a movie. Oh, you think so, huh? I think so, because I think the 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 fury and and the, the sort of suddenness and and that violence is mostly coming from Brad Pitt. It's amazing his performance in that scene is just um, completely surprising and unexpected because how he goes from cool to fierce in the blink of an eye is amazing. Yes, I, I think that. That violence is hinted at earlier in the movie, you know, the rumors going around that his character killed his wife. And so I think I think there's a little bit of foreshadowing there where you know there, there could be this submerged rage within that does come out there at the climax. But but I do think that, that final scene does, does have some jokiness to it as well, because uh, Brad Pitt's character is basically high as a kite on acid <laughs> when all this is going down. So there is that sort of very Tarantino-esque element of sort of sniggering humor beneath all the the carnage and the gore we see going on. For myself, I have to say I have uh, mixed feelings about the ending of the movie. Uh, Thematically, I can understand where it's coming from and where it's going. And I actually think it's quite touching that uh, Tarantino tries to rewrite history and, and turn what was a horrific, tragic event into more of a fairy tale ending uh, for Sharon Tate's character. And like you, I agree, Margot Robbie is excellent in the movie. But it also makes me think of other Tarantino movies where the, the, his female characters have a little bit more agency to them. I'm thinking of Kill Bill, of course, with Uma Thurman, and Inglorious Bastards with the character of Shoshana. 
So he obviously he has the capability of creating interesting female characters and also giving them agency. And I felt like, in a strange way, he maybe he didn't go quite far enough with the end of this movie in terms of catharsis. Rick and Cliff get to have their big moment of heroism, while Margot Robbie's character is more like somebody out of those old westerns that uh, Rick would star in, in which she's the sort of the the patient homesteader who must be protected against the crazy outlaws or Indians. In this case, it's the Manson family hippies. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's something very interestingly retrograde about that idea. Um, and in a way, it's like Tarantino is retreating completely into the idea of the, the past idea of Hollywood, in which you know gender roles were very specific and laid out. Clearly, clearly this movie is a vision just like you know, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time movies are a vision of a certain period of uh, American history. Not something we're necessarily supposed to accept at face value, but merely one idea of what things could have been and might have been. So in that sense, I think the ending is effective at making us think about that, thinking what might have happened instead. But for myself, you know, would it have been nice to have seen... Sharon Tate more involved in her own story? Uh, yeah, I think so, maybe on a certain level. I think it might have been a little bit more cathartic. But your mileage may vary. Sort of going on a different track here, um, just thinking about what the general audience response to this movie is going to be. Obviously, uh, Tarantino's had some controversial responses to his films in the past. And we're definitely living in an era now where I think people are more uh, aware of, of such things as gender politics, which have, have often been something in his films that uh, could be viewed as problematic. But in this film, you know, we, we have uh, sort of this glorification of machismo. We have the two old, old Hollywood guns who ride in basically to save the day at the end of the movie. Even though Margot Robbie gets a lot of screen time with Sharon Tate, as you've noted, she, she doesn't really have a whole lot of lines or much to do in the movie. Um, you know, most of the Manson clan as presented in the movie are, are sinister females. Um, and then you have the actual violence that goes on to the climax, much of which happens to uh, females. I know we're stepping into a cultural minefield here, perhaps, but what's your take on how the gender and sexual politics play out in this movie? An ideal situation would be that there were 12 filmmakers with the, the level of access and freedom that Quentin Tarantino has, and they all have different takes on the world. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, the a latchkey kid who followed his obsessions and sort of self-created himself as an artist. There has to be a certain element of tunnel vision to his creativity that allowed him to succeed at all in the first place. And while we have talked about it in this conversation, I think he's matured in some ways, but he still is the person he is. I don't know if we can expect any filmmaker to answer for the entire world. And I know that there's a real tendency among a, a younger generation of people coming up now who think that everybody should be responsible for everything and it's your job to educate yourself before you speak. I am sympathetic to that, but I also think that obsessions make for great art sometimes. And he's one of the best examples of that. But if you, if you hate Quentin Tarantino, I understand. Um, but I also think there are things he accomplishes in this film that no one else maybe would be able to get across in a movie. And for all of its, for, for those kinds of flaws, which are definitely there, 
there's still more positive than negative in the movies that he makes. Uh, was there anything else in terms of uh, things that really turned you on about the movie that we haven't talked about yet? I think the um, the use of you Keep Me Hanging On version by Vanilla Fudge, truly outstanding. Don't want to be too specific about it. Um, and the early in the movie, the use of um, Hush, Deep Purple, two of the best metal band, hard rock band covers of, of American pop songs of all time. Both used beautifully. Um, the use of Kentucky Woman in the movie, also great. You know, really spectacular music choices in this movie. And uh, and we haven't talked at all about the radio station interstitial stuff. And it's 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 great that he weaves all that in just to make the music seem like it's a soundtrack to every. It's the soundtrack that everyone is sharing in Los Angeles as the movie goes on. Los Angeles weather. Low overcast tonight. Low around 58. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 68. No smog. Beaches now 62. Valley 66. Downtown 65. Orange County 60. I would say it's a culmination of sorts because you you see these sorts of radio interstitials also playing a role in his, a lot of his earlier movies like uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. But he he definitely takes it to another level here. Um, anything about the movie that you thought might have been a uh, weak spot? As my old friend Kevin Kenny from Driving and Crying says, um, you can always shut up and go start your own damn band. <laughs> no, I'm I'm I really focus on what I like about movies, I guess. Um, and yeah, there's I think we 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 touched on some problematic things in the film, but um, I had so much fun, and it certainly didn't seem like it was two and a half hours long. Yes, it's uh, two hours and 41 minutes long, although you, you, you certainly don't feel it. I, I think it, uh, it had a very enjoyable pace. I think uh, it's not something you see too often in mainstream Hollywood movies anymore, where the, the movie takes its time, lets you sink into dialogue and character, uh, you know, not in, in an overly showy way as it does in a lot of Tarantino movies, but just very relaxed pacing, which I found refreshing. It felt like a quarter as long as the last Avengers movie. <laughs> Which I liked, let's be fair, but... Well, in, in, uh, in terms of negative aspects, I've, I'll just throw one out there. Al Pacino, I think he's gotten to the point in his career that uh, he can't play anything but Al Pacino, and I think his performance tends to be pretty distracting. He's just been recreating his best actor performance for years now. <laughs> well, I guess uh, when you get to his age, he's earned the right to, to do what he wants, you know. But he's in the same movie with Bruce Dern, who's actually acting. Yes, this is true. So... Just to recap, um, probably my personal favorite Tarantino movie since Jackie Brown, and I take it you agree as well? Completely. Okay, in closing this week, uh, we're going to end on a little bit of a somber note. Uh, the great actor Rutger Hauer passed away this past week. Um, ironically enough, he passed away in 2019, the same year his character in Blade Runner passed away. Uh, obviously, a lot has been written and said about his performance in Blade Runner, certainly one for the ages, so we won't go over old ground here. But um, having grown up myself as a teenager in the 80s, I, I think he, he made a big impression on me during that decade. That's sort of the decade where he really left his mark. Uh, Jim, do you have any thoughts about Mr. Howard? Well, I will say that uh, you, you never know when people tell stories about making movies how exactly factually true they are even though they, it, no matter how true they really are in people's hearts but you know the story is that he improvised his death scene in Blade Runner which to me is the single best 
seen in the history of cinema. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Every time I've ever seen it in every wildly varying different cut of the movie, that scene always works. I like him a lot in Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone. Um, I don't know if, if you remember other movies from... Well, I'll throw out two. Uh, one is a maybe not so well-known movie, although it did get remade a few decades later, a little thriller called The Hitcher. Oh, yeah. With C. Thomas Howell as the lead, where Rucker Hauer uh, plays this deranged force of nature serial killer that uh, C. Thomas Howell happens to pick up hitchhiking driving through Arizona, which, of course, is a bad move, and the movie turns into this very hypnotic, surreal cat-and-mouse game between them, and it's a fantastic performance by Howard. You stay seated right where you are, or I'll blow your brains through your ass. The gun is empty. Yeah? Yeah? You never checked it, did you? All right. Squeeze the trigger. I will. Oh, I will. Because you can sure as shit bet I'm going to squeeze mine. And as a side note, the movie was written by a man named Eric Redd, who would later take a crack at writing the screenplay for Alien 3. Uh, apparently, Eric Redd was a talented but very disturbed individual who later got into serious legal troubles later in life. The Hitcher is basically the highlight of his career, but it's a good one. Uh, the other movie, it's more of a sentimental choice. It's not a great movie by any means, but it's a 1985 movie called Lady Hawk, which is a medieval fantasy, also starring Matthew Broderick and a very young Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, the story follows Rucker Hauer as a brave knight who is cursed to turn into a wolf at night while his lady love, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, is cursed to turn into a hawk by day. So they basically can't never set eyes on each other. It's not the greatest movie, but it's certainly it's one of the rare chances you get to see Rucker Hauer in a heroic role. And also, uh, you also get the experience of a musical score by Alan Parsons, of all people, that is uh, probably as 80s as you can get. I, I, that must have been during my college um, art film phase. I completely missed that one. Um, but I, I um, early Philip Noyce movie, Blind Fury, that one's really good. But yeah, it's like he he deserved more great parts. Where, why didn't he get to make his Quentin Tarantino movie? Well, I guess he did in a fashion since Robert Rodriguez did use him uh, pretty memorably in Sin City. But it's true, he never really did get that late breakout performance. Uh, well, at least we, we got a, a handful of suggestions there. That's pretty good. Oh, and we didn't even mention the, the films he's made with uh, Paul Verhoeven, which are definitely worth checking out. Spetters. 
Well, I've kept you about for about an hour, so I think I think this is a good place to sign off. Uh, but thank you, Jim, for appearing on our first inaugural podcast here. Really appreciated your insights. This was fun. And I'm sure there'll be more movies coming down the pike that, you, that you'll be a good candidate to, to come on the show and have opinions about. So I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more in the future. Please, anytime you'd like. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Jim. Take care. All right. Thanks. And thank you for listening to the first inaugural podcast of Camera Roll. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be obviously reviewing new movies, but we'll also be uh, introducing a few new features to this podcast, um, which will be secretly under wraps for now, but I'm looking forward to unveiling it in, in front of you all. Uh, if you're interested in more about my movie reviews and general commentary, you can visit my website, camera-roll.com, and you can also email me with any questions or feedback, or even suggestions. It's at camera roll movie at gmail.com. It's all one word, camera roll movie. This is Holin, thanking you once again, signing off until next time, and enjoy yourself at the movies. <laughs>